Well, this week we'll begin our study of one of the Bible's best-known love stories, the book of Ruth. The text that we'll specifically be studying this morning is Ruth chapter 1, uh, which is verses 1 to 22. So if you're following along in one of the Bibles provided, uh, let me encourage you to go ahead and turn to page 222. Uh, and if you have your own Bibles, uh, Ruth chapter 1 is right where you'll find it. It's right after Judges. Uh, turn there in your Bibles. And while you're turning there, uh, and before we dive into the, the text in particular, uh, I'd, I'd love to give a brief introduction to the, to the book itself, to its name and author and date and main theme and its place in the Bible. The book of Ruth, it, it derives its name from the central human character in the story. Ruth is a Moabite woman who comes to faith in the one true God. Though she was a childless widow, the Lord was pleased to use her grief to display His grace and His great plans of redeeming a people for Himself. Through a series of surprising events, Ruth marries Boaz and becomes the great-grandmother of King David. But who wrote this book? Who gives us the, the backstory on King David's lineage? Well, we're not given the author's name, uh, so we can't be dogmatic about it. The Babylonian Talmud, which is a series of Jewish documents kind of commenting on Israel's history and law, suggests that the prophet Samuel was the book's author. Uh, that may be due to its placement or proximity uh, it, it, to the books of First and Second Samuel. Given, uh, given some of the strong feminine language in the book of Ruth, uh, some scholars have suggested, have been inclined to view a woman as the book's principal author. Again, we're not given, uh, we're not given the, the author's name. We're not explicitly told who the author is. So we can't really come to a fixed conclusion uh, about the book's human author. But we can be certain that this book was given to us by God the Holy Spirit. Jesus' disciple Matthew appealed to this book in his gospel to show us how Jesus was a king from the line of David. Matthew takes the genealogy at the conclusion, found at the conclusion of this book of Ruth, as authentic and he incorporates it into his work. Just as it's kind of difficult to uh, fix on an author, it's also difficult to, to fix on a date uh, in the book. Uh, just as the writer doesn't tell us his name, he also doesn't tell us uh, when he or she wrote the book. Uh, there are signals within the book itself uh, that, that it could have been written during several different periods of Israel's history, stretching from, from David's reign all the way even to the exile. Still, while we cannot date the writing of the book itself uh, with absolute certainty, we certainly do know uh, that the setting of the book's events takes place in the period of the Judges. If you'll look there in the very first verse, those are the opening words of the book. Ruth 1.1, 1, 1, Ruth chapter 1 verse 1 reads, In the days when the Judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Uh, though it's set in the time of the Judges, and we'll think about what that means a little later on, Though it's set in the time of the judges, the book's not about judges. It's about the coming of a king. Uh, this book reminds us that our God is at work in history and in the lives of individuals, accomplishing His worldwide redemptive purposes. This book reminds us that even in a dark period of a nation's history and in a dark period of a person's life, that God keeps His covenant and extends loving kindness to His people. That, I think, is actually the main theme of the book of Ruth. The covenant faithfulness, kindness, and love of God. So if I had to summarize the message of Ruth in one sentence, this would be it. God redeems His people through covenant faithfulness, kindness, 
and love. God redeems his people through covenant faithfulness, kindness, and love. In our Bibles, Ruth, as I mentioned earlier, comes after uh, Judges and before Samuel. It's a, it's a fitting place to locate the story since Judges, Ruth, and Samuel are concerned about the rise of the monarchy in Israel's history. But here is where we need to remember that these books, Ruth included, are part of a larger story. The Bible is one grand story. Over the years, I've been helped by Graham Goldsworthy's summation of the storyline of the Bible in his book, Gospel and Kingdom. Goldsworthy suggests that the Bible is the story and revelation of God bringing His people into His place to live under His rule. We see that with God creating Adam and Eve to be His people that live in His place, the Garden of Eden, and to live under His rule, His commands, for He is the King of creation. We also see it worked out in the history of the people of Israel, where God creates a people through Abraham, gives them a place to live in the promised land of Canaan, and calls them to live under the rule of his law and his earthly representative in his king. This pattern laid out for us in the Old Testament helps us to more fully appreciate the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, who recreates a people for himself by the power of the Holy Spirit, secures for them a home in the promised land of heaven through his cross work and resurrection and outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And he calls us, even today, to live under His gracious rule in anticipation of the day when we will live in His place in the promised land of heaven. So as we think about the book of Ruth, we need to remember that its conclusion is not merely anticipating the arrival of King David, but it is also anticipating the arrival of King Jesus. With that in mind, we now need to return to a time in which there was no king. That was the major setting of Ruth chapter 1. Uh, Ruth chapter 1, the chapter that we're now going to be looking at, is comprised of three scenes. The first scene is set in Moab. The second is set on the road to Bethlehem. And the third is set in the city of Bethlehem. The first scene is marked by desperation and desperate actions. The second scene is marked by determination. A determination to return home. And a determination to trust God, come what may. The third scene is dominated by a sense of devastation, where the weight of the loss of life can barely be carried into the city of Bethlehem. We'll consider these three scenes under three headings. Desperation, determination, and devastation. And I'll repeat each of those headings as we move into each new scene. Let's consider the first scene desperation. Well, we, learn, uh, we learn about this in the first five verses. So go ahead and let me read uh, Ruth chapter 1 verses 1 to 5 for us. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. 
The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. The days in which the judges ruled was a dark period in Israel's history. It was a dark history in Israel's history for for two principal reasons. First, there was no king in Israel. And the second, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That makes for a desperate situation. Just look at how the book previous to Ruth concludes. Just flip back a page in your Bibles and you read the last verse of the book of Judges. Read Judges chapter 21 verse 25. In those days, there, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In the days of the judges, God's people were living in God's place. But they were not living under God's rule. They were not living under His king. And they were not living under His law. They were living according to the law of their own hearts. Friends, let me tell you that when we live according to our own feelings and do what is right in our own eyes, when we live according to our own moral compass, we are living in a desperate and dangerous place. We are living in a place where we are king. For we are doing what is right in our own eyes. We are setting our own law and our own rule. In the book of Judges itself, we see what that means. We see what it means for men to do what is right in their own eyes. It means that men in places of power use women as objects. It means that men lie in order to gain more power and pit one people group against another people group. It means that men make rash vows that harm their children. It means that children rebel against their parents and destroy their own lives. It means that priests or the clergy of the Old Testament, men who are supposed to be servants of the Lord, sell out to syncretism and succumb to the pressure of the surrounding culture. It means that men desire to commit the same sin of those in Sodom. It means that men, in pursuit of their own ease, fail to protect women and instead offer them up for abuse. It means that a nation is divided from within, waging war within itself. It means that men commit child abductions. That's how the book of Judges ends. It ends with a mass kidnapping. All of that takes place in the book of Judges, especially the last 13 chapters or so. And when I think about the days of the Judges, I fear that our days are too much like them. Just think about how women are treated in our culture objectified by men rather than protected. Human trafficking occurs today with almost no sign of slowing. Think about how the violence of Sodom is normalized as an act of love. Think about how pastors and preachers are to stand on God's word and serve Him regardless of the scorn they face. How often today are pastors telling their hearers what their itching ears want to hear? How often are they trying to harmonize the morality of doing what is right in God's eyes with the morality of doing what is right in our own eyes? Is there not a kind of syncretism floating around in some corners of Christianity today? Perhaps even in some of our hearts. In the days when the judges ruled, the people of God were waiting for the arrival of God's promised king. Are we not waiting for our king, Jesus, to come again, just as he promised? The days in which the judges ruled are not that different from our days. 
And the book of Ruth opens by mentioning that there is a famine in the land. Well, a food famine wasn't the only famine in the land. From my survey of the last 13 chapters of the book of Judges, I hope that you see and sense that there was a deeply spiritual famine in the land of Israel. Perhaps that's why there was a food famine. Uh, keeping one finger here in the book of Judges, turn in your Bibles back toward the beginning to Deuteronomy. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 28. Here we learn why there was, potentially why there was a food famine in the land. If you look at Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 15 to 19, that's on page 169 of the Bibles provided. Take a look at Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 15 to 19. Moses writes, and the Lord speaks. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, which you're doing, you're not obeying the voice of the Lord if you're doing what's right in your own eyes, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all of His commandments and His statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground. Increase the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. Well, turning back to Ruth, page 222 of your Bibles provided, turning back to Ruth, we can see it is not too much to suggest that the famine may have been sent by the Lord in order to urge the people of Israel to repent, to turn away from doing what was right in their own eyes, and so return to Him, doing what is right in His eyes. And we can be sure that this was a severe famine. It was a severe famine, for it had even reached Bethlehem. Bethlehem literally means house of bread, which of course suggests that the house was often full of food. Still, Elimelech does what everyone in the time of the judges did. He did what was right in his own eyes. Instead of obeying the voice of the Lord as Moses in Deuteronomy urged, instead of repenting and turning and trusting in the Lord for his daily bread, he sought to save his family and himself by acquiring bread from another land and from another hand. It is ironic that he goes to Moab. He goes to the land of a people whose king in Numbers chapter 22 sought to hire a false prophet named Balaam to curse the people of Israel. And do you know what Elimelech's name means? It means, my God is king. Needless to say, he wasn't living up to his name. We're simply left to wonder if he submitted himself to the rule of another king when he departed the land of Israel for the land of Moab. With him, he took Naomi, his wife, whose name means pleasant. She has a pleasant life. She's married. She's got two kids. She has two sons, Malon and Kilion, and their names mean weak and frail. Now, if you recall what took place in the book of Numbers, then you'll remember that when Moab's curses on Israel failed, when Balaam tried to curse the people of Israel and those curses failed, uh, the people of Moab tried to trip the people of Israel up through an, another means, by another means. In Numbers 25, we learn that the daughters of Moab seduced the men of Israel, inviting them to offer sacrifices to the gods of Moab. Look at what happened there in verse 4. The sons of Israel 
took daughters of Moab for their wives. The disaster of Numbers 25 was only ended through death. As Moses called for the death of the men who had yoked themselves to the daughters and the gods of Moab. Just as death struck in Numbers 25, so it did again in verses 3 and 5 of Ruth chapter 1. And notice the progression of these verses. At first, the family was going to sojourn. Verse 1. They were only going to be there as long as was necessary. But then in verse 2, we're told that they remained there. Only to discover in verse 4 that they eventually ended up living there for at least 10 years. They sojourned. They settled. And then they stayed. The steps down to Moab for this family led down to the grave. Not once, not twice, but three times. Elimelech was survived by his wife, Naomi. Her pleasant life, as the meaning of her name suggested, became unpleasant when death took her husband and her two sons. And I find the conclusion of verse 5 fascinating. If you look at verse 5, you'll notice her name momentarily drops out of the narrative and she is simply called the woman, perhaps suggesting that we pause and take in the fact that in the ancient Near Eastern culture, with the death of her husband and her two sons, she had lost her identity. Moreover, Naomi's life was no longer pleasant, but unpleasant. Her name will not reappear in the narrative until she's explicitly connected with her daughters-in-law. She is left without her two sons and her husband. She was left without them, but she was not alone. She had two daughters-in-law. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. From a worldly perspective, she had lost everything. But God in heaven knew that Naomi hadn't lost more in Moab than she had found. She just didn't know it yet. God had created that desperate situation that sent Naomi to Moab. God created a desperate situation that she was now in. And the question remains, will Naomi repent and return to the Lord? As verse 5 gives way to verse 6, we begin to see that the Lord is drawing her to Himself. But before we turn there, let us pause and take in one lesson for application. Elimelech and his family walked away from Yahweh. They walked away from God. They, they only meant to be away from the land of Israel for a short period of time, just as long as the famine lasted. But they remained in the Moab. And they wound up living there. Brothers and sisters, let us begin to fear for our souls when we only mean to open ourselves up to temptation for a moment. Do not knowingly enter that danger. Do not knowingly walk away from the Lord. Don't sojourn away from the Lord. It's followed by settling and staying. You need to cut off that temptation and cut it out. You need to stay close to the Lord and not drift away. We need Him and we need His people. We can't afford to be away from Him and His people for it only leads to danger and death. And just as the theme of desperation permeated the first five verses, so the second scene of Ruth chapter 1 has a theme that permeates verses 6 through 18. In this scene, on the road to Bethlehem, the theme of determination 
makes itself known. So this is our second point, determination. See if you can spot the several instances of determination in these verses. Uh, read Ruth chapter 1, verses 6 to 18. Then she, it's referring to Naomi, then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her, two daughters-in-law, Go, return, each of you, to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them. And they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you will go, where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Now you'll notice that I took the, the title for this point right there from, from that word determined, right there in verse 18. Ruth was determined to go with Naomi, and Naomi saw it. Ruth's determination was unmistakable. That determination is critical, really, to the rest of the book and the rest of the story. But several determinations preceded it. Notice in verse 6 that Naomi and her daughters-in-law make the determination, they discern that they should leave Moab and return to Bethlehem. Still, another kind of determination emerges in verse 6. I wonder if you noticed this. The Lord had determined to bless His people. He gave them food. He, he determined to bring the famine to an end. He had also determined that He wanted Naomi to hear about it. It wasn't by chance that Naomi had heard in the fields that the Lord had visited His people and given them food. As readers, we should, we should start to ask ourselves, huh, I wonder why that is. Could it be that the Lord is, is graciously drawing Naomi back to Himself? Is the Lord's kindness leading to her, her to repentance and a return to Bethlehem? Should we dare to hope that the Lord might redeem her life from this pit of despair? Well, in verse 7, the women, these women set out. But in verse 8, we see that at some point, Naomi determined that it was best for her daughters-in-law to return to their mother's house. 
so that they might be able to remarry. I think we should appreciate the remarkable sacrifice that Naomi is, is making. I think we should view her determination to send Ruth and Orpah back to their mother's house as an act of loving kindness. Naomi wanted the best for them, even though it would cost her. She even determined to bless them, you might see there in verse 9. She wanted the Lord to give them rest in the house of a husband. And notice that this blessing, it's marked with belief. Even in her grief, Naomi believes that God can bless Orpah and Ruth. Naomi is headed home in humiliation, but she doesn't want these women to suffer in her desperate situation. They have hope for a better life, even though she has little. They can remarry and bear children. Naomi has lost everything. She is completely vulnerable and without the hope of rest, without the hope of peace and safety and security for the rest of her life. She urges them not to enter into certain suffering with her or for her. And in, in the ancient Near Eastern culture, Naomi has a right to these women too. She has a right to command them to do what she wants. In the ancient Near East, these women have married into her family and have effectively become her servants. But she gives them up in love. Love does not cling to its rights, demand its rights, or assert its rights. Love sacrifices its rights for the good of others. Love dies so that others can live. And that's precisely what Naomi does for Orpah and Ruth. She wants them to live, not just really live, not just barely live, but to really live. In verse 10, these women respond to Naomi's loving display by expressing their determination to stay with Naomi. Naomi has told them to go. Now in verses 11 to 13, she's, she tells them twice more. Turn back. Turn back, she says. And this is not a suggestion. This is a command. This is, this is an imperative. Naomi even provides Ruth and Orpah with the unassailable logic behind her command. She does not have sons in her womb. Even if she did that very moment, they could not wait to be married. It would endanger their future. As a widow, she was vulnerable. There was no need for these widows to remain widows and expose themselves to that same vulnerable position. If that were not enough, at the end of verse 13, we see that Naomi has determined, in the sense that she's perceived, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against her. Do you hear what Naomi is saying? She is saying, Orpah and Ruth, the Lord is not for me. He is against me. Surely grief and pain will follow me all of my remaining days. And I love you too much to let you go back with me. Turn back, my daughters. And in response to Naomi's command, Orpah obeys and determines to go home. But Ruth, she determines to stay. We can almost feel Ruth's love for Naomi there in verse 14. But Ruth clung to her. It's just a beautiful picture of love. You know, Naomi has said, I, I love you too much to let you go back with me. And, Na and, and, and Ruth, with her grasp, effectively replies, 
I love you too much to let you go alone. Recognize here that Ruth, she's giving up her life. She, She is giving up. She's putting to death any earthly hope of marrying. She is a foreigner. What man in Israel is going to want to marry her? In love, Ruth is is putting to death any earthly hope of having children. And Naomi knows it too. So she commands her yet again in verse 15 to return to her people. But read Ruth's settled determination again in verses 16 and 17. It's really a poem, actually, in the story. Read verses 16 and 17. But Ruth said to her, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go... I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. These verses, they're organized around the ideas of life and death. They begin with promises pertaining to life. Where you go, I go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Those are promises which are are essentially saying, where you live, I'm going to live too. Then these verses conclude with death. Right there at the end of verse 17, you'll notice that Ruth actually calls down a curse upon herself. Naomi feels cursed by God. So Ruth enters into her experience and asks Yahweh to curse her if she separates herself from Naomi. Ruth has even tied herself to Naomi beyond Naomi's death. Ruth has tied herself to Naomi's grave. Did you notice that? That's that's what the beginning of verse 17 means. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. Even after... Naomi's death, Ruth is pledging to live where she died and to be buried there. There is no turning back for Ruth. Not even after Naomi's death, Ruth has made a lifelong commitment. How can Ruth be so committed to Naomi in life and in death? Because Ruth has a commitment that is far more profound than merely a commitment to Naomi. It's right there in the middle of the promises concerning life and death. In verses 16 and 17, Ruth can be so committed to Naomi in life and in death because she has given her life to the one who rules over life and death. Ruth is not going back to the gods of Moab. They're not her gods. She doesn't want to return there because she has turned to the one and only living and true God. This is Ruth's profession of faith. She's even taking up the words of the Lord Himself to make this profession. This is what the Lord promised the people of Israel in Exodus chapter 6 verse 7. The Lord said, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And Ruth is is saying, is saying, just as the Lord took you to be His people, so I am taking Him to be my God and therefore to be His people. Ruth is leaving her family. She is leaving her land, leaving her culture, leaving her religion, leaving everything. And Ruth is pledging a new allegiance. An allegiance to the God of Israel, to the God of Naomi. It is an allegiance more fundamental and more profound than any other allegiance that she has ever known. And Ruth's faith, 
mirrors that of Abraham, who left his homeland, his gods. He was a pagan. He left his culture. He left his family to serve the true and living God because he trusted him and his promises. Like Abraham, Ruth put her whole hope, her whole future, her whole life in the very hands of the one true God. Friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, this is precisely what I want to encourage you to do today. To pledge allegiance to the one true God by placing your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to encourage you to put your whole hope, your whole life, your whole future in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, we've all been made by God. We've been made in His image to love Him and serve Him and follow Him. To give our whole lives in service to Him. But just like our first parents, just like Adam and Eve, just like Elimelech and Naomi, we have done what is right in our own eyes. We have made ourselves king rather than recognize Jesus Christ as king. Sin is claiming God's authority for our own and living our own way instead of God's way. It is rebellion against Him. And for our sin and rebellion against the eternal God, we deserve to be cursed eternally, to face His eternal wrath. That is why in love He sent His one and only most beloved Son, Jesus. Jesus was fully God and fully man. The Gospel of Matthew tells us that He was Ruth's great, 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 many great times more grandson. And because Jesus was fully God and fully man, He lived the life that we have not lived, the life of perfect obedience to God the Father. Jesus never did what was right in His own eyes. He always and only did what was right in the eyes of God the Father. And yet, though He was perfectly righteous and innocent, He gave up His life for sinners on the cross because He loved them. What does love do? Love dies. And that's precisely what Jesus did. On the cross, Jesus took the punishment, the curses that were due to sin. He died because the wages, the cost, the payment that was due to sin is death. And three days after His death, God the Father raised the Lord Jesus from the grave, vindicating Him and proving to us all that His life and death on behalf of repenting sinners was acceptable in God's sight. And now, the Lord Jesus Christ calls all of us to turn from our sins, to turn from the false gods that we worship in this world, and to place our faith in Him, believing that He has redeemed us. Like He called Ruth, He calls us to forsake our gods, to forsake the gods of this world, and to trust in Him as the one true God. He calls us not to trust in ourselves and what kind of earthly things we can see, what we hope we have before us. He calls us to trust our future, to trust our, entrust our future to Him, to trust our whole eternity to Him, to place it completely in His hands. And friends, we do that by turning away from our sins and placing our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you want to think about, if you want to think further about what that means to follow the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, believing that He lived and died and was raised for you, then talk with a Christian friend or family member you came here with this morning. Uh, find me at the door after the service. I'd love to talk with you about what it means to place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and to entrust our whole lives to Him. Brothers and sisters, 
I wonder if you are determined to love like Ruth loves. Love leads to death. Are you determined to love regardless of the reply? Are you determined to die to yourself in order to love your neighbor and your co-worker? Are you determined to die to yourself in order to love your, your fellow Christians, your brothers and sisters in Christ, your, your church members? Are you determined to die to yourself in order to love your spouse or your kids? Love gives up its life so that another may live. That's how Ruth loved. That's how Jesus loved. Is it how we love? While verse 18 allows the narrative to continue on, I think that it may also preview what lies ahead. A profound sense of devastation in Naomi's life. Previously, the author has described Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth's dialogue by including their actions. If you look back up at verse 9, you'll see that they kissed, and they, they lifted up their voices, and they wept. And in verse 14, we're once again told that they lifted up their voices and wept again, and that Ruth clung to her. But after this confession of faith in verses 16 and 7, 17, and this commitment of love from Ruth, the author tells us that Naomi was silent. No crying or clinging. No weeping or wailing. It's strange that such a profoundly moving moment, a moment of solidarity unto death, that we're left with silence. Sometimes profound grief and devastation is, is unmoved. Perhaps Naomi is in shock. Perhaps she's overcome. Whatever the case may be, the journey continues on. And the devastation goes with Naomi. And this is what we see in our third point. Devastation. And as we think about this, read Ruth chapter 1 verses 19 to 22. Ruth chapter 1 verses 19 to 22. So the two of them went on till they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi, when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Notice how there in verse 19, the two of them are brought into our field of, of vision. As these two widows come into Bethlehem, the whole town is, is stirred because of them. It would have been hard to re-enter Bethlehem. In those days, due to the, the size of the city, there would have likely been only one gate that they could enter. They could not come in unnoticed. As they approach the city, the women of the city are, are abuzz. They're excitedly talking to themselves. That's what that word stirred means to it. And the tone behind their questions is, is one of excitement. Is this Naomi? Is she coming back? They're asking, is this the pleasant one? Is this the woman whose life was full with a husband and two sons? Was it something about Naomi's appearance? Was it just that she had been away a long time? 
We don't know, but it seems as though they could tell that something was different with Naomi. And Naomi could tell that they were curious. And in verse 20, Naomi curtly cures them of their curiosity. She gives herself a new name. And in her new name, she communicates that what has transpired in these last 10 years or so of her life is bitter. She, she gives herself this new name. And, and notice, not just the name she gives herself, but how she does it. She first commands them not to call her Naomi. Then she commands them to call her Mara, which means bitter. She also tells them why. The Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. She recognizes that all things happen under the sovereign control of God. And she's right. Names in those days meant something. Indeed, they often revealed something of a person's character. Naomi has been dealt a bitter blow. And it has made her bitter. Whereas she says in verse 21, I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Who, who wouldn't struggle with bitterness in the loss of a husband and two sons? From her vantage point, there is no reason in the world why she should be called Naomi. For those reasons have been ripped away from her by death. I do think that we need to, uh, we need to carve out space in the Christian life for, for the verbalization of lamentation and grief. I think that we need to allow people to say hard and shocking things like this. The, the Psalms are often filled with lamentation and grief. In, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, the Apostle Paul assumes that Christians will grieve. And yet he also assumes that Christians will grieve as those who have hope. Naomi seems to have very little hope. Her life is empty. Naomi has suffered a bitter providence. But she is also bitter. The commands, the questioning, and the evaluation of what God has been doing in her life are all symptoms of bitterness, I think. Bitterness, if you've experienced it in your own life, perhaps from somebody else, bitterness strikes out at others. Doesn't Naomi lash out at the woman of the women of the town? Bitterness dwells on a matter, nursing it. Naomi not only takes the pain, but she plunges herself into it and commands others to join her in it. Bitterness does not merely judge God's providence as hard. It also excludes God's benevolence. And that's precisely what happens with Naomi. She says her life is empty. Is it really empty? The author purposefully brought the two women into view as they came into the town. But did you notice that Naomi took Ruth out of her view in her lament? She never says we in her lament. She only says me. Naomi has tunnel vision. She is alone in her grief because bitterness has isolated her from God's grace and love and benevolence. She is empty. Only she is not. There is another widow standing there right next to her, beside her. That she has forgotten that God in His love has given to her as a lifelong companion. God will not let her be alone. 
Not only does Naomi's bitterness hinder her from seeing God's goodness to her in Ruth, but it also prevents her from seeing a signal of God's restoration in the barley. Her house was without bread in verse 1 of the chapter. But now her house will be supplied with bread because of the loving kindness of God. And what Naomi misses most of all is what she confessed with her own lips there in verse 21. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. She went away, but the Lord brought her back. She shouldn't have gone away. And the Lord could have let her go. But in love, He clung to her and drew her back. Friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, let's be honest. Too often, we're bitter. Maybe our bitterness does not go on display for the whole town or the whole church to see. But it probably bubbles up in our hearts from time to time. And so we dwell on it and live in the pain. Perhaps in love God has disciplined us to draw us, to bring us back to Himself. But we have judged His providence as hard and as unloving. Maybe you feel that way about your marriage. Maybe you feel like your spouse is critical, uncaring, and not leading in the ways in which you want to go. You're, you're devastated by your spouse's apparent lack of love for you, lack of love for God. So you dwell on the disappointments and fail to see God's benevolence in the barley around you? Have you tried to see God's love for you in your marriage and how He may be using it to draw you closer to Himself? Maybe you're bitter about your singleness. Maybe you move from fear of being alone to anger for being alone. Maybe you dwell on your, dwell on your, your failed relationships and see them as a burden rather than a benevolent gift from God. But perhaps in love, God has spared you from an even greater heartache and grief. Maybe you're bitter about your career, where it has been, where it is, or where it's going. Maybe you are bitter about your economic circumstance. Maybe you're bitter about your health. You feel like you're always fighting some ailment, or perhaps you, you struggle with sleep. Maybe you're bitter about old age and the physical pain that comes with it. Or bitter about your childhood. Perhaps you feel as though you were deprived of something you deserved in your upbringing and it eats away at you. Everyone tells you that you had great parents and you just want to tell everyone, look, they weren't so great. Perhaps you're bitter about your church. Bitter about how long the preacher's sermons are. Or bitter about some change or something that's not changing about how your service is hardly recognized and appreciated or, or about how you want to serve but are being asked to be patient perhaps you're bitter about how people perceive your spiritual maturity you know this past week in my own life I did something strange I, I, I made a list of things that I think I may be bitter about and in the, the short space the painful space of five minutes I made a list of about 12 things I think I, I may be bitter about and I was grieved by it. And I prayed and asked the Lord to help me see the barley in my life. To see His benevolence, His goodness to me. There's so much barley. There's so much common everyday grace in my life. But even more than that, there is a figure in my life 
who unfailingly shows me the benevolence of God. The Lord Jesus Christ is with me. He'll be with me to death and through death. He's so good to me. Why am I so bitter? Brothers and sisters, we need to repent and give thanks to God for what He's done. To remember that He's with us. And, and do you remember how Ruth promised to be with Naomi? To go with Naomi where she would go. And, and she kept her promise. Look at verse 22. And this is where I want us to conclude. By thinking about this verse again, this beautiful verse. So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Is there anything that's strange to you about that verse? Isn't it strange that Ruth returned from the country of Moab? Did you notice that? Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the country of Moab. For Ruth, that's a, that's a strange way to identify her arrival. We should sincerely doubt that she's ever been in Bethlehem before. This is almost certainly her first arrival. Shouldn't the author have said that Ruth arrived in Bethlehem? No, I think that the author got it right. There are, there are several things that are going on here. First, I think that the language of Ruth's return shows a continued identification and solidarity with Naomi, sharing with her in her sufferings. Ruth loves her too much to let her suffer alone. Secondly, I think that this also signals to us that Ruth truly returned to the Lord in repentance and faith, just as all God's people are called to do. Though she is a foreigner, she is now being included in the people of God. And as such, she has returned to her true home. Finally, with the beginning of the barley harvest set before us and the, the house of bread being filled again, we're being encouraged to hope that the God who is filling up the house of bread will also fill up the life that has been emptied by sin and famine and death. God will fill up Naomi's life with untold blessing through this widow who has returned with Naomi. And as much as Naomi protests that her life, that she came back empty, she did not. She found more in Moab than she lost. She just didn't know it yet. And through Ruth, the Lord will give her more than she could have hoped for or imagined. He would redeem her life and give her a great, great grandson who would be the king of Israel. He would redeem her life. And more than that, in time, the Lord would forgive the sin of her bitterness through her greatest grandson, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he would do it all through Ruth, the one who returned with her. It's amazing. The Lord had to send a famine and death to save Naomi. The Lord was not against her as she said he was. He was more profoundly for her than she could see in her present circumstance. Dear Christian, on the days that you feel devastated by destruction and depravity and perhaps even death, remember this story. Remember that God, just as God was working all things for good, according to His purposes for Naomi and for redemption in Jesus Christ, 
Remember that He is doing the same for you. He is working all things together for your good. Because that's who He is. He is a God of love and faithfulness and covenant commitment to His people. Let's pray together.